Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Betty in the Sky with a Suitcase. I'm Betty. I'm a flight attendant for a major airline. I'm also an avid traveler, so I bring you stories from the airplane, from the pilots who fly those airplanes, and from traveling around the world. This episode is called It's in the Air, Part 2, because in the last episode, I had this great story about an F-18 fighter pilot ejecting out of his aircraft and the story was so long that I just didn't want to edit it down too much and it was going to take up a whole episode so what I did instead was do a two-parter and in the last episode we heard about him ejecting out and his flight down and then in the end of this episode we're going to hear what happens to him once he hits the water and this episode is called it's in the air because when you spend so much time in the air Things happen. And in this episode, we're going to hear about some swearing in the air. Don't worry, it's not too off color. Uh, an embarrassing moment uh, in the air, a cat and a mouse in the air, and some pilot competition. And then we're going to get back to that amazing story about the F-18 fighter pilot ejecting and what happens to him when he hits the water. So let's start off with some <laughs> swearing in the air. Okay, now this, this was in New York, and this story regards my very first summer of being a flight attendant, right? We're living in New York. There's like five of us in this apartment, and all of us, one morning at like 5 a.m., get called for the death trip. This is this turn from LaGuardia to Palm Beach and back on an L-1011. Wait, what do you say? Ah, the kosher clipper. <laughs> it's horrific. It's horrific, right? So we all get, all of us in the same house, there's five of us. Each of us gets called for the same trip. So we go to the airport, we get there, and of course we're late, right? So the agent wants to board right away, and he wants to board this wheelchair passenger. Looks like a nice older gentleman that's sitting in this wheelchair. So, and his wife looks, he's maybe 80, and his wife looks like maybe she's about 60, and she's walking, he's in a wheelchair. So the gate agent says, I'm just warning you, this guy needs a little extra time, so I need to board right now. So my roommate, Megan, says, okay, I will help him. So he stands up out of his wheelchair. As he's getting up, this is the sounds he's making. Oi, 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 damn it! 
And I swear. So he starts walking, and every. No! This is how. This is the sound he makes when he's in motion, right? Perpetually. This is the sound he makes when he's in motion. And of course, he's seated in row 42. So we. I have Megan walking him back, and he's moving at this pace, like a snail's pace, saying, as he's moving, he's saying, Oi, 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 damn it! Oi, 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 damn it! It's all the way back. We had to start boarding first class before he made it all the way back to his seat. So finally we get him on, we're flying, and what do you know, right after the seatbelt sign goes off, ding! He has to go to the bathroom. <laughs> Megan, once again, she was a saint. Once again, she goes, Eric, I will help the guy. And now there's a cabin full of passengers. The guy stands up. Oi, 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 damn it! And he's screaming this, much louder than I'm screaming it, through the whole cabin. Everybody's like kind of whispering, like, oh, it's kind of funny, uh, kind of un- awkward, uncomfortable. I don't know. How do you describe this experience? All the way to the bathroom. So anyway, she takes him into the bathroom, and I mean into the bathroom. She had to accompany with him. Lots of dammits, oys, all that, all the way back to his seat. Anyway, so to make a long story short, at the end of the flight, we are standing at the cockpit door for deplaning, right? The, the, both of the pilots are standing. Both of the pilots are standing in front of the cockpit door. I'm standing you know, right by them, and then Megan is standing right by me, and this man is coming up the aisle. Oi, 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 damn it! <laughs> so, yes. Oi. So, well, of course, the pilot's laughing because they didn't see him come on, but then this is the kicker. He stops when he gets right in front of us. He looks up at Megan, and he goes, this was the worst flight I ever had! And then he looks at me, points right in my face, he goes, You were wonderful! <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> Greg. Greg got this phone call from his wife when he got to the airport in Atlanta. They had, everybody had already checked their bags and everything. Right. His wife said, honey, have you seen the cat? I can't find the cat. Did you, did you notice if the cat was in the house when you left? And he's like, no, I didn't really notice. And she's like, well, you don't think you could have packed him in your bag, do you? It's like, no, 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 no. And then when he got on the plane, he was getting worried because he remembered that he was packing in the dark. And, uh, then he, after he finished packing, he put his suitcase in the trunk of the car so, because he had an early flight. So then he went to the airport. Oh, wait, so the night before? The night before. So the bag, the suitcase was in the trunk of the car the night before. And then so he was getting worried, and he was telling his buddies on the airplane, you guys, you know, they were all joking about it, drinking Bloody Marys, and, ah, cat's in the bag. Ah. <laughs> and he checked the bag? 
he checked the bag. He had checked the bag. So he's getting worried. He's like, you guys promise me if that cat's inside the bag, you won't tell my wife. And you know, we'll just go out to the desert and dig a hole and bury, oh bury poor Joe. That. Joe is the cat's name. So, so uh, the guy who was telling me the story, Jeff, who was sitting right across from me, was saying that he was the first one to get the bag. He, he saw this Greg's bag. It was a duffel bag on the on the carousel thing and he got it off and he was giving it to him saying (laughs) so he gave it to them and Greg opened the bag and out comes Joe this big white cat White he had been in there the whole time. He had been in there like nothing had even phased him. And like, wouldn't he have meowed when they like shut the bag? I know, I know. <laughs> so that was the big story. And then they showed me a picture in their digital camera of of Greg holding Joe and having his cell phone to his ear, talking to his wife. So on the, you saw the bag. So how big was the bag? The bit. I didn't see the cat have any space. I saw the cat. The cat was huge. And then they had another picture of the cat in a truck when, like, this was his vacation, you know. But they had friends that lived in Las Vegas, fortunately, that came to the airport and picked up Joe and took Joe home with them. And then, you know, to come back, he had to get a... he had a to pet carrier? Right. He had to pay for a pet carrier, and we're all joking. Oh, just put him in the bag again. It's free. <laughs> Word for the other one, right? right. <laughs> but wait, I... Sorry, poor Joe. But the other thing, I don't really understand, like, why the cat didn't make any noise or anything. You think he wanted to go to Vegas? <laughs> I think he liked sleep. I think he liked getting in all those clothes. And I know that's and, a cute story, and that's remarkable. And that um, it went through X-ray too. It was supposed to have little cat bones in the bag. <laughs> <laughs> One morning, really early morning departure, about 6 a.m. out of, I think it was Minneapolis. We had a real light load on a 737, possibly 35 people in coach. So I thought I'd be super stew and make a pot of pre-departure coffee and serve it to the passengers in coach. Well, I go down the um, aisle with the pot of coffee in one hand and a tray of cups in the other. And as I get toward the end, I look at the bottom of the pot, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, what's in the pot? And it was a mouse, a dead mouse. A little little baby mouse had crawled in the pot during the night. I didn't look in the pot. I just pushed brew. And then my dilemma was, do I go back and tell everybody they had some mouse amundle coffee or what? And I thought, I'm going to leave it at like that. Oh, well. Unbelievable. <laughs> One night I was working a flight from L.A. to Sydney. Okay. Remember those? L.A. to Sydney? 10.30 at night. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. all right. Yeah. So we leave at 10.30 at night, and the flight is so long, of course, we take turns, you know, right. resting. Yes. So it was my turn to be on duty. Right. And the flight hardly had any people. I mean, every passenger had a whole row was sleepy. We'd finished all the meal services, and I'm sitting there, and I'm the only one on duty, and it's dark, and I start getting the nods. So I said, oh, I know you can't help it. Man, I said, I got to get up. I got to walk around. I got to do something here. So I start walking in the cabin, and there's this guy, one guy reading in the whole cabin with his light on. So I, you know, I walk by him, and 
asked him what he was reading and started a conversation with him. And he turned out to be a really, really nice guy, just a terrific guy. Well, we stood and talked and talked and talked. And after a while, I got tired of standing. So what's the most natural thing in the world that a flight attendant does? She sits, sits, sits down in the armrest. Yeah. Well, I didn't realize it was somebody laying on the rock <laughs> there with his head near the armrest. And I sat in his face. <laughs> this, guy, this guy had glasses on. And he gets up and he goes... <laughs> Let me tell you, I got out of there so fast, it made your head spin. And I made some girl who was working in first class change with me. And I, I said, I'm not going back there. I am not going back there again. And when we got to Sydney and we disembarked, I hid in the bathroom so I wouldn't see this guy. I'm t- Can you imagine this guy when he gets to Sydney and he says, his friend, whoever's picking him, how was your flight? Oh, great, this flight turned set my face. <laughs> always the, the uh, competitiveness between pilots and what you're flying and who you're flying with and what kind of equipment you're on but in the military at one time there was an F-16 pilot and he came across a C-130 droning across the sky so he got on the same frequency as the C-130 and and the uh, F-16 guy says watch this so he zooms out in front does a barrel roll does a loop does a couple of aileron rolls and comes back and says try to do that and it says, well, actually, actually, we can do something better. So there's this dead silence for about 10 minutes, and this F-16 pilot finally gets back on the radio to the C-130 pilot and goes, well, what, what are you going to do? He says, I've already done it. I went back, got my lunch, poured a cup of coffee, went to the bathroom, and got back in a flight deck. <laughs> And now it's time to get back to our fighter pilot ejecting out of his F-18 aircraft. So I'm in the parachute now, and I figure, okay, i, I got to be up here around 11,000, 12,000 feet wherever I am. And now you slow down dramatically, so you, you got a little bit of a ride going at this point. Now, we're about 80 miles off the coast of, you know, Jacksonville area, St. Augustine. It's April. I think it's like April 14th. I mean, it's cold out there, even in the Gulf of Mexico. And it's late in the afternoon, so, I mean, I'm starting to... It hasn't really sunk in yet, but later on I'm going to start figuring, you know, they may not find me before it gets dark, which wouldn't be real fun. But I'm still, you know, the, the parachute works. I look up. Everything's going just fine. I find my little steering, not really steering toggles, but steering loops. So I'm, I'm flying this thing now. I figure I'm a pilot. I need to fly this thing. Now, so, you, have you done any skydiving before that? I, I, well, one, you know, one time when you're, when you're going through training... Okay. They, they drag you out in a field behind a pickup truck. I mean, they parasail you behind a pickup truck out in a field in Pensacola somewhere. That was it. That's all I've done. You know, other than that, they drop you off the back of a boat with the rig so that you can practice landing in the water, but you're not really in a parachute. But I'm coming down in the parachute now figuring, well, you know, I've, I've done all of the various components of this. I ought to be able to figure it out. And I don't really have a choice at this point because I'm going to hit the water sooner or later. So, you know, you do the do your housekeeping chores, you take off your gloves, you pack your stuff away, you know, you release, in your seat you've got survival gear, and you release the bottom half of your seat, 
and on about a 20-foot tether, you've got this raft and a survival pack that, that yeah, a little raft. It's a, it's, it's human-sized. It's like a little one-man egg-shaped raft. That's an amazing chair they got there. Yeah, I know. It's got a lot of stuff in it. So now I'm coming... I'm coming downhill, and I'm thinking, all right, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna hit the water sooner or later. You know, they always tell you in training, look out at the horizon because you'll never know when you're ready to hit the grab. You're looking straight down, you've got no depth perception. You won't know when to release the fittings and get into your parachute landing position. Ah, they're full of crap. You know exactly when you're going to hit the water. I was looking right at it. And you can tell. I mean, and it was pretty rough out there. I mean, April, the white waves are crashing, stuff like that. Even 80 miles out, white caps and stuff like that. So you can see it coming. I've got my life vest inflated at this point, and I'm ready to release that parachute just at the moment my feet touch the water. So I get myself all done, but they tell you not to, you know, not to get too far along in the process because if you do get a little nervous and pull on those fittings early, you release yourself from the chute, and you may have a long way to fall. So you get your fingers ready to just lift the guarded cover and release the thing as soon as you touch. Happens just as advertised. Your feet touch the water, and down you go. The chute's off of me and I'm in the water. You don't really go underneath the water because your life vest is inflated and the thing, I mean, you're just bobbing like a cork on the water. Well, now, I remember back from training, you know, the next the next big thing that you got to do is, is get the what's left of the seat pan unattached from your ass so that you can get into your raft. And in training, when they did it in the pool, you know, they load you up with all your gear and all your clothes and you're in the pool and you're, you know, you weigh, you're all wet down, you got all this gear on you and you're trying to get into this raft. And the technique you're supposed to use is you know, the raft has these little handles on the side of it. You're supposed to kind of get in, in the narrow end of it, grab each side of the handles, and then what they tell you to visualize is just pull down as hard as you can on the handles and then try and rotate your body into the raft. And you see guys doing this in training, and it is just a cluster. I mean, you can't, you're trying to pull this inflated raft underneath the water. I mean, you're really trying to lift yourself up, but you're basically trying to pull the raft down so that you can get into the raft. And everybody makes it about halfway in, and they're flipping like fish, and they never quite make it into the raft. So I've got this image in my mind that it's hard to get into the raft. So I get all my stuff together, and I'm giving myself my subliminal pep talk. It's like, okay, you're going to grab the handles. You're going to pull down as hard as you can. You're going to try and do like a half gainer and land on your butt in the raft. So I get myself all psyched up already. I grab those handles. I even count myself down. One, two, three... I pull down as hard as I can, I arch my back and do a half twist, and I land in the water on the other side of the raft. Amazing what adrenaline can do. And I, at that point, I no kidding, I am laughing my ass off in the water, You're thinking, really laughing I'm laughing at this point, going, you know, they never could quite simulate adrenaline in the pool. <laughs> and next time, I locate the raft again and grab the handles, and I say, now, accounting for adrenaline, gently pull yourself into the raft and it worked fine that time i mean right into the raft no problem well now you're sitting there inventorying all your goodies in your survival bag you know you get your little four ounce bottle of water which is going to save you for like an hour you've got your chiclets you've got your sea dye marker so they can find you now sea dye marker has been more affectionately called shark bait or shark you know shark attractor so i'm sitting there looking at the sea dye marker thinking okay do I really believe that this is going to attract sharks, or do I just throw it in the water? I mean, I haven't died yet. I lived through the crash. I didn't get hit by any of the crap falling down around me. I'm in the raft. There's shit landing in the water around me now as it is. Am I going to worry about this sea dive marker, or do I want them to come find me? I said, no. I rip the thing open. It's on a little lanyard. I throw it over the side of the raft, 
And two seconds later, a wave picks it up, drops it in the raft with me. Now I'm sitting in the raft, and, and the raft is basically full of water because I haven't started bailing at this point. So you're in the raft, but you're you're sitting up to the you know the gunnels of the raft in water. It's like, you know, highlighter fluorescent green. So that's the color of the water. In so that's the color of the water in the raft. Now I'm looking down at this little puddle of, of you know, this this sea dye marker, and all I can think about is, okay, so it's not just, like, shark bait. It's like meat marinade for me, and I'm going to be the shark bait. So I throw it out of the, you know, throw it back out of the raft. I'm bailing a little bit, and, you know, they, they give you stuff to bail with. I mean, you're really supposed to bail a big part of the water with your helmet, but I'm not thinking that far ahead at this point. I know that I've got a bailing sponge. Now, the bailing sponge is to get the last little bit of water out of the raft, but I'm looking at the sponge, and I'm looking at all the water, and I'm kind of thinking, I don't think this is really going to work. So at that point, I get my emergency radio. I'm not worried about bailing at this point. I get out the emergency radio and see if anybody's around to talk to. And But there was another plane out there that became the on-scene commander uh, and it turns out, just as luck would have it, there were a couple of helicopters who were, were out on a mission. And when you eject out of the thing, the beacon that's in your seat starts sending out the emergency signal. Helicopters see the signal, they tune into it, and they just point you know, point towards it and start flying and see what they can find. That's really an empty seat, isn't it? It's, I tell you what, you got to like those. you got to like those seats. So I'm in the raft, I'm talking on the radio. Turns out we find out from the on-scene commander that the other guy is alive. He's in his raft. He's about a mile away. So he, he was lucky too. Yeah, he was lucky too. The reason why he was so far away from me is because of the geometry of the crash. When his cockpit broke off, he was actually traveling uphill. So his cockpit did much the same thing, only he was upside down doing it. And the disorientation factor, he literally had to put his hand on the canopy to push himself down into the seat so that he could reach the handle and pull it. And when he ejected and went out of the cockpit, his helmet rolled forward and covered up his face. So he's doing the blind man thing. He can't see because the helmet's over his face. He doesn't. He's not really cognizant of this point of what altitude he's at. Gets a little nervous and he decides to beat the seat. So he pulls the handle and beats the seat, and he's up there at 20,000 feet. And since I didn't look up again after I saw the big black cloud above my head, I never saw him. So I came down a lot faster, a lot lower than he did, and he drifted downwind for about a mile. So we're in the water a mile apart. I can't see him in the water. Uh, I'm talking. I hear a helicopter. I'm talking. So now you're thinking, okay, you practice this too in the pool. They, they send the rescue harness back to the pool. The rescue harness comes down. The frogman jumps in the water. He hooks your ass up, and they drag you up into the helicopter. So the helicopter comes into a hover. I see the harness coming down. I tell him on the radio, you know, I'm going to get out of the raft and finish up my housekeeping because you're supposed to get away from the debris so the helicopter doesn't churn up the raft and, you know, bad things happen. So I paddle away from my raft and, uh, you know, wait, and I'm looking up at the door of the helicopter waiting for the guy to jump in the water. And I'm actually signaling to him, you know, with my hand, okay, come on, anytime now, jump in the water. And he's, he, he's not dressed in his swimmy gear and he's looking down in the window at me and he's just shaking his head. And he's pointing to me, and he's making the motion like, you, hook yourself up. And I'm thinking, you know, what, no no frogman to the rescue? So at this point, I figure I'm not going to complain. You know, the, the little harness is there. I make sure it touches the water before I touch it, because, you know, that static electricity can basically light you on fire. So I, uh, I hook the thing up, do all my stuff. They, haul, they hoist me up into the, uh, into the helicopter, and you know, just as advertised. Now I'm sitting back in there. And the first thing the pilot does, you know, you got to love Hilo, guys. He reaches back with a pack of cigarettes. Hey, you want to smoke? And I'm like, no, thanks. I'll be okay. 
So I'm sitting there, and about this time I start figuring out that, you know, I don't really feel so good. And at that point was the first time I realized that my face had gotten burned going out of the... Well, yeah, because my visor was up. So I, I had this nice kind of little Rocky Raccoon burn because it burned me from the you know the helmet down and the, the oxygen mask up. So I had the nice little goggle burn marks on my face. Fortunately, I recovered just fine. Of course, the you know the real fun part of the story is I was I was about a month prior to getting married. Now with with burn marks and no eyebrows, so that was going to be a pretty picture later on. So we're in the helicopter. They're taking us back to. Uh, NAS Jacks to the hospital and uh, land there you know of course it's big news there you know whole armada of people out there they put you on the stretcher drag you into the hospital and they got you in the triage thing and you know there's a crowd of people around and they're you know basically cutting out cutting you out all your gear to check you out and I'm sitting there kind of noticing that you know it's like 40 or 50 people standing in the room and they're getting to the point where they're going to cut me out of my flight suit at this point at that point I kind of called a timeout and, you know and anybody who, did, anybody who didn't have a ticket could kindly step outside. <laughs> I'm so glad that that pilot is alive and well and was able to tell us that story. I just found it so interesting because it's so out of my own personal range of experiences. I can't imagine ejecting out of a aircraft, and I guess I never will have to do it. Well, that's about it for this episode of Betty in the Sky with a Suitcase. I hope you'll join me again next time so we can travel the world together. Bye. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.